Need to create a complex enterprise Angular application? Angular Bootcamp is an intensive three-day workshop class to learn the basics of Angular through sophisticated techniques for real-world applications. We target Angular 6 and the recent versions with much of the curriculum is suitable back to Angular 2. Or go beyond the three-day class with a consultation or project launch with Oasis Digital, the team behind Angular Bootcamp. We can assist your team or launch your project with advanced Angular topics including scalability, data flow, state management, full stack product design, and more. Contact us for a private class at your location or buy a ticket for public classes in various cities around the U.S. and occasionally in Europe. Online live instructor training is also available at angularbootcamp.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another Adventures in Angular podcast. This week on our panel, we have John Papa. Good afternoon, everybody. Alyssa Nichol. Hello, hello. Joe Eames. Hey, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Go check out getacoderjob.com if you're looking for a job. We also have a special guest this week, and that's Dave Bush. Hello. Should I say Dave Bush or Dave M. Bush? Dave Bush is good. Dave M. Bush is all over the web. <laughs> you want to introduce yourself real quick? Uh, yeah, I'm a programmer. I've been doing uh, I've been programming for 30 years, uh, most recently in the .NET space and even more recently in the JavaScript space. Uh, started using Angular with uh, the release candidate zero and... Um, yeah, that's basically what I've been doing since it came out. Nice. So uh, we brought you on because you wrote this article, Where to Store Angular Configurations. Right. And I, I thought it was interesting. And I have, I have a few things that we could talk about here and a few questions. I'm also curious to hear from the rest of the panel how they handle some of this stuff. So, um, but just to give us a little bit of context, it looks like you've been blogging for a while. What was the inspiration for this particular blog post? Uh, most, most of my posts like that are born out of frustration, um, or where I see a recurring problem. Um, I've actually been, uh, contracting for most of the time that I've been programming. I just took a full-time job, but, um, the contracting actually has me moving around a lot. Um, and so with the, uh, the Angular stuff in particular, I'm actually at my the second place where they're using Angular and running into a lot of the same types of problems. So, um, you know, what I saw was using the environment TS file, environment prod file for configurations because that gets loaded every time. Uh, and I, it's a previous place we've been loading uh, from a database. Uh, and then kind of along about that, we saw the, uh, the app initialize uh, hook in Angular and uh, that looked like a nice clean way to actually pull everything together. I love it. So you're an angsty blogger. <laughs> right. So um, you uh, mentioned at the very beginning, and you mentioned it just now that you put, you, a lot of people are putting it in like environment.ts or environment.prod.ts. Um, right. why, why doesn't that, why isn't that a good idea? Because I'm sure somebody's sitting there going, hey, I do that and it works. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the basic problem with that is um, you can never be entirely sure that when you move something from dev to QA to production that your code hasn't changed. Uh, you can put different things in place in, in one organization where I was working. Um, they just tagged every build so that they could actually build from that build. But because of the way uh, NPM works, um, it's, you know, it's not that you can't get around it, but it's a little tricky to, 
uh, be sure that you know what you actually built the second time is exactly what you built the first time because you know you might get a different version of the package in the process of rebuilding. Um, and so this way, I know for sure when I move it along, the only thing that changed was uh, either the physical environment that it's in, you know, maybe firewall rules or something uh, are a little funky, or my config is not set up correctly. Just limits where I look for bugs. Gotcha. So that, that file does load every time, though. It, so it's just a matter of, uh, like you said, managing dependencies and things like that that may move. Right. Right. So you walk through some other scenarios in here, and uh, one of them is just setting up like a config file that you do a get request for. So it's kind of a static config file. Yes. So do you want to just talk us through that? I mean, do you, so you just pull in the JSON and have some service that parses it? Is that the idea? Yeah, and this is actually where, where I'm currently working. This is what we're using. We, so we have the, uh, the config.json. Uh, you use a regular uh, get request against it, and then our, our deploy process uh, knows um, there's actually a, a config.dev.json, config.qa.json, config.prod.json, uh, and our deployment process knows um, if I'm deploying to this machine, it gets this config file and renames it to config.json. So my code always knows load config.json no matter where you are, and you'll get the right information. Um, but it's a pretty, pretty straightforward um, get request, uh, and because it's a JSON file, uh, there's not really a lot of uh, wizardry involved in it. It just load the file like you would from any REST endpoint. So is there a downside to that then? Uh, well, the only real downside is if you want to change it, you got to copy a new config up. Mm. Uh, yeah, which is why, which leads to the other, other possible method is you go into... Um, you're basically putting stuff in a database um, so that you can actually make a, a genuine uh, REST call against that store. Um, and what that does for you is uh, you've got a, a production issue um, and you want to be able to re replicate that issue using production data, hopefully not actually doing any writes, um, but in another environment where you can actually change the files easier. And uh, by using the database, you can point stuff to different endpoints along the way uh, without having to necessarily um, deploy a, a whole new deploy uh, configuration uh, into your environment to get those changes. It just makes things a little bit more, uh, a little easier. You're still going to have to bounce, um, possibly bounce the uh, application or bounce the server to, um, to get those new configurations because it's going to load it up front, um, not load it while it's running but it's a, you know, control F5. Gotcha. All and right, so hold on a second. Um, you're talking about, I've got the configuration locally and I want to make a change locally, but I can't because the configuration is on the server, so I have to upload it to the server, right? No, no, I'm talking if you want to uh, replicate, say, on your dev server, mm -hmm. and our, which is different from the local de local development. So. Right. Most of the places that I've, that I've worked, they do all of the actual development, localhost. We'll, we'll call that local. Right. Sure. And then there's a dev server that they deploy it on, uh, where they do most of the integration testing from a developer perspective. And then it moves from there to QA, which is where our end users look at it, uh, and the QA department looks at it, and then uh, from QA to prod. So I'm talking 
and you know you've you've got a, a say you have a problem in the QA environment, uh, and you want to be able to replicate it in your dev environment. And you, you can't replicate mm -hmm. it because the data is different in those two different environments. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so you you mentioned in your article the um, what is it the app uh, what about app initializer? Yes. Event. Okay. So this app initializer event is going to execute on the browser, right? It's going to make a get request to the server, grab the configuration file and pull it down to the browser. Yes. All right. So wouldn't there isn't there also then uh, another cost in this method in that you've introduced some kind of a startup delay in the application when the user first hits the website? That's true. However, um, it's it's very minor. I, you know, I've never actually visibly seen it, so it's technically true, but experientially not true. Well, so I, it probably depends on your application, of course, right? And the, and right. The, your application, like for a lot of stuff that you build, that startup time is is going to be very minor. When we get to where, hey, I've got to build something that executes for a whole bunch of people and we want like a one second uh, startup time on a mobile device, right? Then this sort of, then the, this type of technique when, you know, you've already gone to server-side rendering and found out that even that isn't fast enough. So you probably cut this out of your process by then. But when you're talking, hey, I've got an application that a lot of people use and the load time is, uh, if I can shave uh, 50 milliseconds off the load time, I don't really care, right? Right. Which is probably a, a significant, in my experience, has been, I haven't written an application where shaving 50 seconds off the milliseconds off the load time mattered. Uh, shaving a megabyte off the download size, size might have mattered now to, to cut it down from six megs to five, but right. <laughs> shaving 50 milliseconds off the load time doesn't matter. But it does definitely have an effect if you are building an application where you're trying to target like, hey, we want a responsive application in a second and a half, then this is, you're already going to be trimming so many pieces of fat right you might be able to find some of that too and just the download size of uh the various uh lazy load bundles that you're you're bringing down you know different way of chopping up the application so the first hit doesn't take that long because your config file is really not that big it's right. interesting because you're right there, there is a startup cost to it but i think it's all dependent upon what you're doing during that startup time period too uh, if, like, for example, you would never recommend, I would hope that somebody makes an API call that takes 45 seconds before they start their Angular app, you know. Oh, right now. <laughs> you know, so there are yeah. things that you optimize, like, and you really only get the data you absolutely need at that startup. And I got to tell you, as many large-scale apps as I've written with Angular, even AngularJS and even before it, I've used a similar process like this. There's just always something you need to know before you start it to truly make an environment uh, agnostic. Right. Did you ever work with uh, AngularJS? Is because they had a version of this in there as well using the manual bootstrap. Um, I I worked with it long enough to say that I have, but not enough to get you know like I don't have as much experience with it as I do with the uh, the newer Angular. Yeah, it's interesting. I only reference that there because it's a very similar process. Effectively, uh, and I'm going to just kind of simplify how I explain it to, to people, is what they did there is you effectively cranked up a little tiny Angular app uh, that had no visual form whatsoever. 
you injected the service you need, made the HTTP call, grabbed it back, and then you were able to take a service from that one and shove it into the real Angular app. Uh, it wasn't very elegant, but it worked. What I like <laughs> about the app initializer is, is it's basically looks like it's all part of the same app, right? You mean, right. looking for your article, it's really part of your app. It's just a different provider. Yeah. And actually, before I discovered this, I, I did a, uh, an implementation that basically, you know, just used uh, um, some fancy uh, observables or promises to get the data uh, and make sure I had the data before I continued on. So, yeah, I've even seen people do like jQuery or Axios or things like that. There's other ways too, right? Where people would just do a just do a straight HP call before the thing and then call it. I've also seen where people take like JSON data and serve it up inside of a template inside the index HTML. And then they'll read right. that as the first thing when the Angular app starts. I mean, there's lots of ways to do this. What I really liked about your article is you say right off the bat, don't use that environment file that Angular gives you. And I'm 100% with you there because I feel like <laughs> even just by the name of those files, it makes it sound like, oh, this is the perfect place to do it. Right. It's not. And once you discover that you know, only one or the other compiles when you build, it's, it's really attractive. Um, yeah, but you would think, again, looking at the names of those files, that environment TS compiles every time and environment prod compiles only in prod. Yeah, the question I get a lot, and I had it literally on Twitter, I think yesterday, I could go find it. I get it a lot is, uh-oh, I'm oversimplifying again, but uh-oh, Angular's terrible. Uh, <laughs> the only way I can make uh, something work on staging and production is to rebuild the entire thing because they see those file names. And, <clears throat> you know, unless you have somebody sitting next to you, that's not very clear. I, I personally feel like those names should be changed. And honestly, I don't even use those files personally. Uh, yeah, I, I don't either. I, I leave them there so that I can get a prod version, but I'd really rather have that even be a config. But I don't. Yeah. I haven't tried making them a config, and they're, you know, they're part of the build process, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah, because the idea is, and tell me if you agree, like I've always wanted to make one build that would work in any environment. And I've had places where I worked where there's seven different environments. Uh, mm -hmm. And all you do is change like an environment, a node environment variable, and everything just kind of figures itself out. Right, right. Yeah. That's I mean, that's, so that, that's a nice way to approach things, right? But a lot of time that doesn't necessarily, like, certainly when you're talking about like a local build, you've got an unoptimized build, right? So at least when you're talking about not a dev server, but like I'm running locally on dev, you're probably not going to be using that same build and moving it around because it's going to be unoptimized. Um, and depending on the technology, I think with, with Angular, that's probably not, not an issue. But with other technologies, it might be um, that you want to build slightly differently based on the environment. But with Angular, it seems like they kind of, they're, they're really moving things towards um, having only, you know, your local dev build is a little unoptimized, but man, they're really making a lot of optimizations even there so that we can it's starting to use the, you know, it's being compiled ahead of time compiled and that's getting faster and faster. And, right. and now with the new, um, what's the name of that new thing? I'm blanking on the name, the new rendering or compiler and rendering compiler engine. Oh, Ivy, Ivy, Ivy with Ivy, right? There, there could be even more advances here, but then once you're done, you create that one up op, truly optimized build. And then that could be the same thing in all environments. Right. And even, um, you know, I'm, I'm favoring, you know, making that uh, even my development experience as close to 
what's going to happen in production. Because I, you know, before we got the uh, the AOT all the time, I ran into situations where you know, the developer would build it um, locally and it would work and commit. Um, and then when we would go to build it for production or you know QA or whatever dev um, for one of the servers, it wouldn't even build. Mm. Right, and so I started implementing. I don't, I don't care that it takes you know 30 seconds longer. You're going to compile it for AOT while you're doing development, just so that when you commit it, we know it's, it still builds. I've also right. put some, uh, some pre-commit hooks in, um, and we have a, a Mariner process that runs uh, on our, our GitHub now that uh, actually builds everything. So we don't merge unless that Mariner process says everything's good. Yeah, I ran into all those same issues. There's just a lot of stuff that you could do without the AOT that you can't do with it. And right. If you aren't building for the AOT frequently, you don't encounter those things. Now, what about source you maps? Know, one of the things the AOT does, though, is it it um, it also tells you you've got uh, an error. Uh, oh, how do I say this? It tells you you have a runtime error before you actually run the code, and it shows up in the console window that you never look at. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they do put some stuff up on here. All right, so let's let's talk about source maps. What about source maps? Because obviously I want them in my local development build, but I might want them on uh, some of my staging servers so that when we encounter problems there, I can look around and see the source maps, but I prob- I'm pretty sure I don't want them on production. Right. So how do you, hand- do you have a way for handling that? Is that a configuration setting again? I mean, obviously producing the same build moving around r- ripping out the source maps. Uh, I don't think I've ever tried doing that before myself. Um, with our build, process i believe we could i don't think we are um but i believe we could um say you know when you deploy because it all ends up in the disk directory and what we do with the disk directory is we basically create a tarball out of it so you can selectively you know say you know create a tarball but don't include the map files have you ever ran into that issue john yeah, what I've done most often is again one build i'm not talking local dev once it gets into our uh, GitHub's and other places for source control. The pipe, CI deployment pipeline. Yeah, once it gets into the pipeline, there's always a build, and the build is the same thing, and the environments for the seven different environments or more just get flags. The only time we change or deviate is if there's some kind of a problem, then we do a special build with source maps and debug symbols, and we deploy to a dev server uh, to do that. We tried stripping out source maps and what at sometimes, and it works, but it Honestly, I just found that we so infrequently ever debugged on those servers that it was easier to just mm. rebuild, deploy to that server, debug it, rebuild. Because when, when I did debug, right. it was like a constant rebuild anyway. So, Yeah, anybody ever encountered an issue where having the source maps is actually the issue? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I have, exactly. Have really? Oh my, I've never encountered that myself. I was yeah, joking. I haven't either. <laughs> Hell yeah. I even had somebody try to deploy source maps to production once and... Can I say hell yeah on this? Is this rated for it? Uh, <laughs> it actually slowed down. It slowed down the perceived performance of the app when it cranked up, and we were getting yelled at for, "Oh my gosh, what did you all do?" It now takes seven seconds to load the app. <laughs> oh, this guy to load the map files. Right. Yeah. Yep. Side note, John, and and when this goes live, it'll actually be used. Uh, somebody else dubbing in with, "Golly gee willikers." That's how we. That's how we edit out the, the swears. Oh, cool! So you're telling me I can swear every force, <laughs> especially if you want to be saying "golly gee" a lot. <laughs> Golly gee! So now I feel like I'm back on uh, "Leave It to Beaver." 
I, I don't know. I don't think I pay in the editor enough to do all that. <laughs> so if we were leaving it to Beaver, let's think now. That would make uh, me Beaver in that case, and that would make Joe Eddie Haskell. If you're yeah, not familiar I mean, with that show, go check it out. <laughs> so, Dave, I have to ask you. If, I mean, stepping back from this whole thing, I, yeah. I can appreciate this. I can relate. I lived this story <laughs> many times. But uh, a couple things to just think about that I've been asked, and I'm curious what your opinion is, Going down this road, why why bother? Why not just use, uh, forget the environment prod flags, like we know that means you have to make a different build each time, but why not choose one of the other four or five ways that people have hacked around this over the years? I, like what other ways? Uh, like one of them, for example, would be to just take your config information uh, in a file, like you've got some file names set up, whatever, uh, and your server, could just embed it inside of your index HTML. That's one way to go. Okay. Uh, right. You could also wait till the app is loaded and you could hit an API like right after the app is loaded and kind of flip for things. Um, I've seen a lot of weird hacks throughout the years. Yeah. Not um, framework specific hacks, just okay. hacks. Right. The uh well as I said, I before I found uh app initializer, um I was doing the once the app was loaded, go get the, the configuration information. Um, simply because I didn't know about App Initializer. I think App Initializer is a much cleaner way to do it. Um, just because I don't have to, basically I don't have to manage the uh, the waiting process, you know, for the secret, uh, uh, the promise resolve. So it's just, it's, it's cleaner, it's simpler. I don't have to do as much work. And I certainly don't have to think as hard. The one where you're embedding the stuff in the, uh, the index file, uh, I've seen that before. I forget what environment it was. Um, that one is probably workable as long as um, you're running a server that is generating that information uh, on the fly dynamically, um, or you somehow embed it into your in index HTML file as part of your build process. But yeah, I mean, you can't do that. Yeah, because so you're going to have to that, right? be more like, let's say you're using Node.js. It could be any platform. It could be PHP, right. ASP.NET. And as the server is serving up index.html, it makes a call from server to server to go get that config and embeds it into a template tag, for example. Right. Or the old style script tags where we used to put data in the script tag like that. Right, right. Um, and uh, one of the things I like about, um, particularly the way we're doing uh, Angular development is uh, all of our Angular files are just served up by um, Node Express that serves up you know, static files. I, I really don't need any middleware uh, to serve up my Angular code. And my REST endpoints typically end up being in, in, in both the environments that I've worked in, they've ended up being uh, on completely different servers. So there's really no reason for my my express server to be serving up anything that's dynamically generated. Deploy more, pay less with DigitalOcean, the simplest all-in-one cloud computing platform for developers. Scale and run cloud applications faster and more efficiently with effortless administration tools to robust compute, flexible configurations, networking services, real-time alerts, and rapid provisioning while enjoying industry-leading price to performance with a flat pricing structure across all global data center regions at any usage volume. Spend more time building better web apps and less time worrying about managing infrastructure with DigitalOcean. Build your next app on DigitalOcean. Get started with a free $100 credit at do.co adventures. Was there another method you would see? Uh, nothing 
worth giving people bad ideas for. Sometimes I'm afraid <laughs> on air to talk about things I've seen. <laughs> we don't want to tell them how to do it wrong, right? Yeah, then people will be like, next day on Twitter, you're hearing, oh, John Papa told me to do it this way. No, no. Speaking <laughs> <laughs> uh, of the fact that deployments and, and builds and all that sort of stuff, I definitely see like that is one of those places where everybody does it a little bit differently because the, the needs of the apps are so varied and it's the least place that you have like these uniform examples to just follow, right? I mean, as much as people take a really opinionated framework and still write things radically different from another group, then you get to the DevOps section and it's like so crazy. You pair in the needs of the back end. It just gets nuts, right? Oh, we're, you know, we're, it's totally different if it's Node versus if it's uh, Microsoft and .NET versus if it's Java, th how things work, how you build. And rarely are you just building your front end in isolation, right? Oftentimes you've got to build the back end too at the, in a similar time, right? They need to be paired up together and that build process is entirely different. Coordinating the two can be a real pain. The back end, Joe, that's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go serverless. There's an interesting Twitter thread recently about uh, serverless uh, stuff Aaron Frost was having, noticing that like, hey, yep. if it goes to sleep, it's 10 seconds to wake up. And basically a bunch of replies were, don't do serverless as you're like, oh, it's a panacea for all my problems of hosting. It's not it, right? It's, right. it's really, it's a much smaller section of issues than people want you to believe, the people who like serverless and, and tout serverless. Yep. Serverless is great, but it's not, you know, it's not like, hey, I learned to do serverless. We're going to solve every problem with it now. Right. No. Now we don't have right. a deployment pipeline. Now we don't have to do this like Google <laughs> Cloud Functions. They just aren't going to solve a lot of your problems. No. They're yeah. wrong. wrong tool. I've, got a, I've got a deep question for you, Dave, here. I'm going to put you on the spot. Two-part question. What do you recommend putting in this config? Like, what do you recommend... Kind of, what kind of data as examples would you get before your app starts? And what Ooh, kind of data question. do you also recommend not to? Um, in general, I would recommend putting anything in there that is going to change as you move from one environment to the other. Um, most of that for, you know, in my experience has been uh, rest endpoints. Um, but, you know, I've, I've had situations where, uh, and, and this is actually a good practice, uh, where we've uh, we watermarked the application somehow uh, with a, an image so that we know, okay, you're working in the dev environment now, um, or or change the color or or something, um, you know. So that would be, you know, something worth putting in that config file in some way. Um, but um, let's see what else we have in there. Um, yeah, I, I just while you're thinking, I chime in. The API endpoints were the like the number one thing I've always done. Yeah, you, know, you want to hit a dev database versus a prod database versus staging. That's kind of important, right? <laughs> so. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So we have uh, basically application environment specific variables. So you know if it's going to change. Um, have you but, seen? And, and the reason I ask about things not to put in there. Have you seen abuse of it? Because I know I have. Where like <laughs> all of a sudden that's so easy to do. You know, 10,000 fields getting loaded when the app's starting. You're like, what are you thinking? You know? It's right. Like, well, yeah. I was thinking the uh, admin username and password of the database. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, I see depending it. on how big the application is, if you really need to, to load that many different endpoints or whatever you're, you're loading at that point, uh, you, you might think about putting it in a, in a, uh, a route guard so that you're, you're only loading that information for the route that actually needs it. 
Yeah, and I've seen like for endpoints, like I've worked with apps where you've had a thousand endpoints and but you can always come up with a convention, right? So don't load the thousand endpoints, load the convention that changes for all those endpoints. Yes. So it's only a field like dev versus prod. I've also seen, um, just thinking of stinky, stinky code, right? <laughs> code smells here. I've seen where somebody put in an app once, well, we need all the states and the countries and cities to be loaded before the app starts. We'll go ahead and do that. And I, th I think there's a lot better ways to go about it than be, right. that can load while the app's loading, right? It doesn't have to be, Right. Before. Yeah, that could be an aggressive lady load, lazy load. Sorry. Yeah. yeah so how do you how do you decide? How do you prioritize? They're like, this is definitely because for nubs like me, I'm like, I don't know. I'd probably put all the states there. Why not? Like, so what's your where's your line? Well, the way I look at it is always like, don't put it there unless your app cannot function. Like, you can't even load a service or a component, like the main component, without this information. And stuff, for example, states and countries. Uh, think about app component, the way I, in Angular, app component doesn't usually have visual interfaces. It's usually the shell of your app, right? Mm. Nothing, there's no data needed for that, but you might need to know where are my database endpoints. Uh, you might need to know other environment specific stuff to, to get started. But then once your app component's loaded, then you can have like resolvers or route guards or whatever you want to do to say, okay, before I load my customer search page, Mm -hmm. Go ahead and go load all these things in the background. So right. you're not saying you're not saying load in your UI before it has things to populate it. You're just saying be wise about what you're putting <laughs> in this config. Yeah, because because the first question Joe asked was was head on, right? I think the reason speaking for Dave and then he can answer if I'm totally off base. I think <laughs> the reason Dave said he hasn't noticed a performance problem is because he doesn't go crazy loading stuff up front, right? Right, Dave? I hope. <laughs> He froze. <laughs> oh, no. Here, I'll answer. Exactly. That's exactly what I, yes. <laughs> Dave, you froze. You're back now. But did you hear the question? Yeah. It, it sounded, what you said sounded right. At least okay. you were in the right direction. Well, one other thing that I've seen people do is they they build something like a service that has to connect to something. You know, we're talking about a back end in this case. And so what they do is they put some flag in their config that says, this is production. And then their service says, has a conditional that goes, if it's production, hit this backend endpoint. And if it's, if it's uh, staging, hit this one. And if it's dev, hit this one. And instead, what you want is you just want in the config, this is the backend. And then it's just like, hit that backend. So it doesn't look up, it caches that value in memory. And then when it does the lookup, it doesn't have to do that conditional every time. And so uh, I guess the mistake that I see a lot is you can think about some of your configs kind of the way you think of dependency injection. And so then it doesn't have to know it's production. It just has to know where to get the data from. So I have a question for our Angular expert here, Joe. And for Dave. Mm -hmm. too. Sorry, I saw you disappear for a second, Alyssa. <laughs> so our Angular experts, Joe and Alyssa and Dave. App Initializer at one point was experimental in the Angular API and it no longer has that flag. Uh, do you all know when that disappeared and when it became non-experimental? Because I don't. I do not. I, that is a piece of trivia I would get the buzzer on. <laughs> My favorite answer to questions like these are uh, sometime in four. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was between 4.0 and 4.1. Oh my. That's when yeah, I, 
I was using this feature like two years ago when it was experimental and I'm like, ah, what the heck with it? It's great. I'll keep using it. And I just went to look at the docs right now and I went back and looked at docs for four and five and six and it doesn't say it anymore. So I, maybe I dreamed it. <laughs> Wait, so it's not, you're saying it's still experimental? I'm saying that the docs at one point said it was, and I can no longer <laughs> prove that that ever was experimental. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. We're rewriting our own history. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I'm going right now. <laughs> so Revisionist like to, get history. I'd like to throw out a little bit of a counter argument to uh, this particular method uh, with a method that I've used in the past that I've really liked because it solves one of the problems, which is just yet one more get request that I'm waiting around for. Although it added a little bit of complexity and that was I used uh, my index.html was actually a server-side rendered page, right? Like, and I don't mean like I'm using Angular server-side rendering like Angular and Universal. I mean like if I'm using Node, it's actually part of uh, it's a template language, or if I'm using .NET, it's actually ASP.NET that produces my index.html page that then runs and loads up all of my um, bundles that are produced in the distribution directory. And the reason is, is because then you can embed right into the page all of your variables that are environment-specific. You, you, it adds a, a bunch of complexity because now you, the server, the backend server knows that it's on this environment, and so it has to know which client side variables apply and then it writes them in as it renders out that server side of page um, and sends it down to the browser. Does that make sense to everybody that I explain that whole concept clearly enough? You never make any sense to me, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> no, it makes some sense to me. I mean, I do the same kind of thing with Rails, right? Um, I tend not to try and insert configs into the server rendered pages, you know, that Rails renders up. Um, just because I like to be able to, you know, if I redeploy, um, I like to have it check in periodically and update itself. So if you but, redeploy, but you can if I redeploy my app, but I guess, oh, I guess, guess if you set up the app like initializer, why? it's going to load that in. It's not going to come yeah, back. It's the, same, it's the same thing with app initializer, right? Yeah. So that's, that's no different there. You'd have to be for anything that isn't constantly being read from the server. It's going to be a one time only. Uh, so, Dave, uh, did I explain that clearly enough? Do you understand it? Do you have like a, some thoughts about that uh, method versus the using the app initializer and just creating an HTTP call? Yeah, it was one of the things that John and I had talked about uh, earlier in the show, um, and I, I think it works. I, I understand why you're doing it. Um, I just I like having um, all of my basically all my Angular code is static files, right? So it's not dependent on an endpoint, or it just it keeps the keeps my server side simple, right? And, you know what your method is? It just moves the problem to the server instead of moving it to the SAP initializer. But I, you know, as long as it's getting done and it's it's not getting done in the environment TS file, um, right? You know, I think it's I think it's a valid solution. Or I think obviously your first point was try not to recompile differently based on your environment, right? Avoiding that right. is is a great is a great thing to do. Right. Um yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think I think one thing here too is that yeah, if you're putting any kind of config into your like your express or dot net or Rails or whatever, then 
you have to have that config somewhere else if you want to use any of your Angular code, say, in your tests, independent of the uh, the actual backend. And that that could be a problem. So if if you have it initialized against, you know, some static file that pulls up somewhere, then it gives you the flexibility and you don't have two systems that are now coupled together by this config that you're putting in a, a server-rendered file. Or server so can I ask it? Yeah. Can I ask a different question then, Dave? Sure. For what about your configuration for your uh, backend? Do you leave that into an environment file that you just place in the different servers? Um, the okay, so um, there is I mean, a .NET has this nice little facility for all this, right? I'm sorry. .NET has this nice little facility for environment files. That yeah, um, we're we're actually using uh, Node and Express, um, you know, I, the the piece that that server needs to know about, we store in a server.config.json file. Um, and use, we use the same deployment method to pick which one of those files for which server. Gotcha. Um, you know, so it, yeah, could we use that and dynamically generate the index.html? Probably, but then we'd have to figure out how to like wire that into the index.html that right. generated for us as part of the build process. Um, now, I wasn't curious so much about integrating it with the previous question. Just, uh, you know, the, the rest endpoints and that stuff. No, no, no. Just the idea of, hey, for my Angular, I want the same exact thing. I can deploy, copy all these files. There's no environment file as I move them around, right? right. So on the server, do you, do you follow the same, or you, do you have the same? Um, strictness with your rules, which is, I don't even want an environment file. I want to be able to copy that whole server directory, move it from server to server. But if you're yes, using well, some yeah. kind of... Oh, yeah. The, the server also has config files. And the server has a config file that you move around, that you that is different based on which server it lives on. And you copy yes. everything else, and then that file gets changed. That's yes. Just, yeah, I mean, I, that's how I would absolutely solve that problem 100% of the time. There's not really a great solution otherwise, but... Right. I've also stored information in environment files or in environment variables. And so then it's not even in a config file because the danger you run into there is if you have any secrets, like say your database password and things like that, um, the, uh, the environment variables tend to be a little bit trickier to get to than copying a, a file out of there and then accessing your database with username and password. Right. right. Yeah. And there's things like, uh, cloud-based key vaults that yeah. will help with that stuff too. But I agree, you don't want to stick your passwords into files. Not a good idea anywhere. Right. Yeah, and the other possible solution is to have um, the server and the client-side config file be the same config file. If it's not that, you know, we're making the assumption it's not a big file to begin with. Right. Um, you know, and if both sides need the same information, you could easily just make it the same file. This sort of conversation just makes me think of all the crazy things I've both seen done and done myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? And it's fun. To, you get on a podcast, you talk about this, and it sounds so simple. And then the rubber starts hitting the road. You realize, okay, this works for 99% of my needs, but I got this one need that, oh, my gosh, this, is, this thing is, it would be so much easier if I violated that and did it this other way, right? And then pretty right. soon, there's 10 of those, and all of a sudden, you've got this crazy hodgepodge, and you're like, and people, the next guy comes along and says, the next person comes along and says, how in the world did you ever get here? And he said, well, you know, it, it, when you stand, the perspective now says, this is really stupid. <laughs> you made the journey with me. 
No, that's when that's when Joe starts crying and says, "Walk a day in my shoes." That's right. right. Like, <laughs> every turn we made, at every decision point, we made a good decision at the moment. It was taken in aggregate that it turns out we did really, really, really stupid stuff. Yeah, I've I've learned over the years that when I see something that doesn't look right, there's a story behind it. Yeah. I, I read this great uh, blog post. Basically, the point was, if you're not embarrassed about who you were six months ago, then you're not growing enough. Mm. I think that slows down a little. I mean, you have to ask uh, some of the, the guys who've been programming older. But I, I do think that slows down a little bit. I don't know. If you ask Ward, it doesn't get any easier. It never slows down, and you're always going to be fighting. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Listen, if anybody's embarrassed about who they were six months ago. Well, that's the thing, too, right, is that sometimes we're aware that there's a big area of knowledge that we don't have. And sometimes we have these blind spots. And so, yeah, you, six months from now, you're going, well, if I had only known that was really a dumb thing to do, or right. if I'd only known this technique, then my code would be cleaner or whatever. And right. I don't know. But yeah. On another podcast, we talked about the whole mood tools and this whole smush uh, flatten issue. Mm -hmm. Right. And for those that uh, aren't familiar with that, the I'm going to try to explain it. And John or Chuck or Dave or Alyssa, if I say anything wrong, correct me. But the TC39 wanted to add flatten to uh, to arrays, right? And then oh, they right. discovered that Mood Tools was used in, using they're uh, manipulating the prototype of objects and adding it their own flatten. And so when they did this, they actually broke a fair number of big sites that are you know older were built back in the day where mood tools was a really popular project and just haven't been updated to newer versions of mood tools and so they just they they went back and changed the name from flatten to smush in order to not break the internet and it wasn't that there was anything in a specification that had gotten broken it was just that this third party tool they had decided to do this thing and manipulate the prototypes which later on became a widespread uh, do not do this thing right but at the time, that when they wrote it, it wasn't nearly as, as commonly said, do not uh, manipulate the prototypes of common objects. Mm. So the kind of, that, but, yeah, my point being that, again, it's one of those, hey, at the time, it was a good, we felt like it was a good decision. Yeah, the other thing that I think is interesting to take from that is that this is a lesson that had been learned by Java, <laughs> by .NET, you know, by uh, 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 other communities before then and it was just for whatever reason mutuals didn't pick up on hey this is a really terrible idea until yeah until much later and so um I, I think a lot of times we discount the knowledge that people who you know aren't one of us have have learned the hard, hard way and so we have to learn it the hard way too well to be fair and i i can't speak of that situation i agree with what you're what you're both saying but I also think sometimes the technologies, as they evolve and change, maybe the decision isn't as terrible on one technology as another. Sometimes that's fair, uh, right? At least, like I don't understand enough about Ruby, for example, to know if everything I would do in in .NET or in Node or Go would be the same as it is in Ruby or not. Yeah, I would go into it thinking the paradigms are the same, but I think the best story there is probably just to go ask a Ruby expert in that case, right? Like go call Chuck and say, "Hey, <laughs> I'm thinking about doing this. Does this sound like a great idea?" Or, Awful. <laughs> you know, I haven't done .NET in a long time, but when extension methods became a thing, I was super excited. I thought they were really awesome. And I don't know if they're 
uh, at all considered an anti-pattern or a code smell now. But that was, it's, I think that's kind of like .NET's yeah. version of modifying the prototype. Only what's nice is it's scoped to just the file that you're in. You're just saying, hey, right here, this object now has this additional method, but it doesn't anywhere else. Yeah, they're weird. I, I got to tell you, extension methods are weird in .NET. Uh, I was excited yeah. when they came out too, but then like the next day, I saw like my entire team implemented like 400 things as extension methods. <laughs> <laughs> Stop. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's interesting too. I mean... You know, you go into that idea again, and, and Ruby is very open to extending um, classes. And, you know, is, it's, it yeah, there like are all a, best practices that come up around it. Is it Ruby like JavaScript where you could take a single instance and add more methods to it? Yes. Yeah. yeah Dave, do, 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 you, you, do you TypeScript or do you JavaScript or where, what do you do? Oh, I'm all okay. Dave. All TypeScript? You're, do you only do Angular? Uh, right now, I'm only doing Angular, yes. Do you use TypeScript in your Node, though? Uh, no, uh, primarily because the, the Node part of it is so trivial. Um, it, it wasn't worth uh, the extra effort that makes sense. to compile it you know, from TypeScript down into... As a matter of fact, it, when I got there, it was in TypeScript, and I converted it from TypeScript to straight-up JavaScript. Um, Joe, do you do your note in TypeScript? Uh, I, I do. As a rule, I wouldn't say I do it 100% of the time because like in the case of me, I oftentimes just throw together little quick little uh, express servers that I only, I spend like 20 minutes on. But if I, I like, I like TypeScript in my, in my node servers. For, yeah, if, if I were sure. doing a big server, I definitely would do uh, more TypeScript there. Uh, what about I, ES6? The type safety that I get from TypeScript um, has uh, solved solved more problems I didn't know I have. Um, right, and uh, it's it's just it's one of the one of the reasons that I, I wrote this article and I write a lot of the articles that I do is because I'm constantly looking for ways to write my code that will prevent bugs from being introduced into the system, so that I actually end up with less code that needs to be tested, the old, you know, TDD uh, argument that's shown up on the show several times. Um, you know, so I do things like, uh, you know, force cyclomatic complexity to 10, which is really small. Uh, it's suggested is 20. Um, wow. I, uh, you know, I, I make heavy use of uh, NGRX uh, and FX and RxJS and which again, you know, by their nature done correctly, uh, you know, force you to write uh, smaller individual pieces that are much easier to reason about. And so by the time you get all this stuff in place, the, the amount of code that really needs to be tested is quite quite small. Uh, one of the other things that I do is I, I put, if I have a component that's got logic tied to it, I put all that logic in a service and make this, the service do the logic and the component is just responsible for Sending um, messages because I use NGRX, sending sending actions out to NGRX and rendering the data that the NGRX system produces. It doesn't do anything in terms of logic. Um, and so, if I were to test anything, I would test the service. I don't have to actually have a whole, you know, gazillion lines of test harness code set up to test my component because my component is just rendering. Uh, and again, it makes the, the code easier to reason about. Right. 
Yeah. Uh, stick, stepping back a little bit, but for your node, are you doing it just ES5 or then? Uh, yeah. Gotcha. Again, it, it's, it's very trivial, so I haven't, there's, there's very little in there that would need to go beyond that, even if I had it. I Maybe that's just, maybe it's just me. I, on a small project, I wouldn't care so much about TypeScript, but it's the ES6 stuff that I really miss. Uh, in TypeScript, you miss it? Well, if I was if I was gonna if I was doing a, a node service and I'm writing my code in ES5, it's the ES6 stuff that I miss. Which Node is supporting more and more ES6, but with which is pretty much on, everything. The type, yeah, TypeScript and ES6 or or whatever ES4 million. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I say ES6 really yeah. meaning ES2018, right? Yeah. Um, They're all. I mean, pretty much. I did a talk the other day with Brian Clark, a buddy of mine, and, and he's like, "What's interesting? TypeScript and ES whatever now." I'm like, honestly, there's very little that's like additional features in TypeScript over the standard. You know, there's interfaces, there's uh, the types themselves, things like that. But a couple things like auto initializing constructor parameters. But it's to me, it's more the uh, the tooling hmm. that I still miss. I have a I have a feeling that a little bird told you that a, a duck. Oh, <laughs> my son. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody can see this that's right. going to be listening to this, but John's son has a little Donald Duck <laughs> on John's shoulder for the last five minutes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Boba Fett's on Huey, John's microphone Huey. now. Yes, Boba Fett's on my microphone. And who's this, Landon? Um, yeah, it's not it's Donald. Dewey. That's Dewey, right? Yeah. All right, from what show? DuckTales. But which one's better, Huey, Dewey, or Louie? I like Dewey. Okay. Why? Why do you like Dewey? I don't know. I just like him. Yeah. I'll, that's a good answer. So, you know, we and should get Landon awesome. on the podcast one of these days. He he takes a coding class uh, at school. He's already better coded than I am. So oh, that's awesome. You know, that's the kind of answer that most people should give when you ask them why they use a particular technology. They really should be honest and say, I don't know. I just like it. It's the most honest answer. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. <laughs> and then you can argue with it either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's totally true. All right, well, anything else that we should jump on here before we go to picks? I think and, we've and already gone pretty far off the reservation. Yeah, well, what was the topic again, Dave? I totally forgot. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was the topic was the new version of Rails, right? That was what we were talking about today. Yeah. Well, before we do that, though, I'd like to kind of wrap up on Dave's article, if we could. Uh, I was skim reading it again, and I just tweeted it out because it's, it's really well done. So thank you. Thank uh, you. The app initializer. I think the thing that people most often forget, and I love that you went over this, is the two struggles I see people have is, one, what if your app initializer has dependencies? And you cover that in your article. Like, to actually make the call over HTTP, maybe you want to use HTTP client, and you show how you can do that or add right. other things in. And the second part is after the data comes back, you got to put it somewhere. And you cover that too. Like you're not just making a call and then the data comes back and it goes into the ether. You need a way to store that in something. And I think you call yours a config service. So uh, I just want to call out that it was uh, well done and you hit all the important points. Thank you. I, I did have another question and that was mostly just around testing. So where do you put your configs for your test? I mean, if you're isolating things or doing dependency injection, you may not need app initializer, or maybe you do. And I just don't. Anyway. Yeah. For you talk about unit testing or. Uh, yeah. 
unit testing in particular. Unit if testing. you're doing end, -to end testing, it's loading the whole thing. So, yeah, uh, and, and again, um, you know, because I I try to stick to a more functional way of coding in general. Um, I generally don't test the services that these configs are going to need because the services are just going out and retrieving the data from the endpoint. They work or they don't. Yep. Um, uh, what I have been chewing on in the back of my mind is uh, some kind of config to provide a mock service that would return uh, a known set of data. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so I can actually config my dependency injections to use mock data or use the, the real service, but I haven't gotten there yet. Makes sense. All right, well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. John, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, sorry. I'm just laughing. My son's having a great time here today. It's the first week of school and we're having a good time together, aren't we, buddy? Yeah. So my first pick is going to be an awesome cartoon that me and my son and my daughters all watch. And that is the new DuckTales that Disney's put out. Uh, they redid the show that was out when I was younger uh, on TV, and they redid the thing completely. And it's actually a lot of fun. You know, it, it's, it's a cartoon, but it's a lot of fun, and we enjoy watching it. It's funny and uh, entertaining all at the same time. Uh, my second pick is going to be a thing called Sketch Notes. Uh, I may have talked about this in the past, but I'm really, really loving doing this. I've been learning how to use my limited artistic abilities to write like notes and take things. The hardest thing I have is I watch a video or I go to a conference and I can't keep up with what the person's talking about, but I want to remember this. And this went great in college back when I went in the stone age, but now I just literally can pull out a pad and I can draw my notes using icons and figures and things like that with a couple words in there using one or two or three colors. And I can go back and look at it later and remember it. And the most important thing is I can keep paying attention while I'm listening to a talk and still take notes. Uh, I find it fascinating. It's really easy to do. I use a combination of them holding it up. A thing called Rocketbook, which is what I use a lot. Like here's my notes that, so the other people in the show can see it. And then I also use my iPad sometimes to do it depending upon where I am. But check it out. It's called Sketchnoting. There's a couple books on it, a couple videos. Uh, give it a try. Hey, your Rocket Note. Have you found a pen that works well with it? Yes, uh, these are the Frixion pens. Just make sure you get the ones that have English on them because I found the ones that have other writing on them from other countries. I think it's, I think it's Chinese, I believe. Uh, it might be Japanese, I can't remember. 
but the ones that had the other writing on it, I learned they, they work just as well, but I was told by the websites that they ha- are not as good for you, like chemically. So make sure you get the right Frixion pens. I got the two that come with the rocket book when you buy it and try mm-hmm. them. They were both absolutely 100% horrible. They wrote so light. I couldn't see anything. Yeah. Yeah. They were ridiculous. But like, you can get different weights too. You got to search around. Like I got, uh, I think it's the seven millimeter, the five millimeter. I also got markers. I'd be happy to share all this information with you. You should pick Rocketbook then. Yes, Rocketbook's awesome. Just don't get the one you can microwave. And if you don't know why, I'm not going to tell you anymore. Go Google it. You can actually <laughs> microwave one of these books. It's weird. But don't get that one. Get the regular one. All right. Joe, what are your picks? All right. So uh, I'm just going to, I mentioned, of course, uh, to pick the Framework Summit awesome conference coming up in October. Tickets are still on sale. And my other pick is going to be a book based on some com- conversation we were having about uh, the comment John's son made about, I don't know why, I just like it. The book is called uh, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Disagree on Religion and Politics. I think that that's roughly the subtitle. I mean, I may be quoting it a little bit wrong, but it's this amazing book about how the human mind works and the fact that we decide what we like first and then we justify why we like it later on. But that, that's, we think that we're picking things because of some arbitrary thought process. And he, he lays it all out through all it's a It's a scientist that's done a ton of study in this sort of, it's the most fascinating book. I've read it, I think, three times now. Uh, for a nonfiction book, that's a lot for me. It's super exciting. So when I hear, when I heard his comment, I don't know why I just like it. That totally rings true to me. That that's how the human brain works. So you should, if you're interested at all in human psychology and how people behave and behavior, you should absolutely check out this book and read it. I picked it a couple of times in the past, I'm sure. Makes sense. People make an emotional decision and then a logical argument for it. Mm-hmm. All right, I'm going to jump in here with a couple of picks. The first one I have is um, we recently got the Nintendo Switch, and I've been playing Breath of the Wild, which is the Zelda uh, version for the Switch, and I've really, really been enjoying it, so I'm going to pick that. Um, it's it's a ton of fun. Uh, it also came with, ours came with, um, uh, what is it, Mario Kart 8 Deluxe, which is more or less the same as Mario Kart 8, except you have two power-up slots instead of one. And so that's been fun um, to play with my kids. Um, my daughter's actually getting pretty good at it, my 11-year-old. Um, so we had a good time. And then I'm also just going to call out briefly the Get a Coder Job book and uh, videos. So if you go to devchat.tv shop, or you can go to getacoderjob.com, um, you should be able to get the videos or the, the ebook if you just want the ebook. And yeah, I, I've guaranteed that to be out by Labor Day. Um, the book might be in kind of a, a rough draft-ish form, but it will be complete. It'll have all the information in it. So um, anyway, I'll put that out there. Uh, Dave, what are your picks? Um, yeah, so I'm going to repick the uh, high-fat, low-carb diet or paleo or whatever your your flavor is. Um, but uh, I, I guess the thing that's uh, most impressed me recently is um, tailored clothes. Um, I've been pretty much thin my whole life and always worn clothes that are bigger than I really need. Uh, and there is a, uh, a site now M Taylor that will take a video of you and make clothes that actually fit you. It just, it's so easy and you know, there's no tape measure involved. 
Um, got my first shirt, shirt uh, last week, and it's the first shirt that, that really fits. So I'm going to go with that. Uh, Foster Lincoln. Awesome. And if people want to find you online, uh, where do they find you? Yeah, the, I'm, I'm Dave M. Bush pretty much everywhere. Um, I'm probably most active on LinkedIn. If you send me a connection, I'll uh, accept it. Um, and then uh, my GitHub account probably be the second second most likely place to find me um, where I've uh, moved my blog. I mean, when you uh, initially found the article, it was on uh, another website that I have since retired uh, because I've moved to a full-time job. So uh, I've moved that, all that content over to my GitHub, uh, to a GitHub pages blog. Cool. Well, thanks again for coming, Dave. Yeah, thank you. All right, well, we'll wrap this up and we will be back next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.